This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, April 9th, 2008. I'm Caleb Brown. Now, years later, how have states performed in restricting the use of eminent domain following the Kelo decision? Ilya Soman, a law professor at George Mason University and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, discusses the progress. Eminent domain following the Kelo decision. Why isn't that a bigger issue in the uh, presidential campaign? Uh, it's it's a good question. Uh, I think there's probably a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that some 42 states have passed uh, what seem like post-QO reform laws, so perhaps a lot of people perceive that the problem has been quote-unquote solved. Uh, a second reason is that there are powerful interest groups in both parties that do benefit from broad eminent domain power, such as local government officials, uh, certain politically connected developers. Uh, so uh, maybe the combination of those two factors uh, is what uh, plays into it. I think it's also possible, I hope it's possible, that uh, some of the campaign strategists have simply failed to see a, a good political opportunity here. Uh, and I think that's potentially possible, but uh, I certainly can't guarantee that if they were to raise the issue, that would be an automatic winner, even though it is true that over 80 or 90 percent of the public say in surveys that they oppose these kinds of condemnations for economic development of the kind that Kilo said were, uh, were permissible. If you look at the briefs that were filed in the Kilo case, there was a broad coalition of groups on behalf of uh, Kilo. And the groups that were on the other side were these uh, local governments uh, like you talked about. It, it seems like if this isn't an issue that politicians could uh, you know, hammer the podium on, it's just confusing that that, that hasn't occurred. Well, I, I would say two things about that. One is that it's absolutely true there is a broad coalition of groups that uh, supported property rights in this case. For instance, the NAACP and several other liberal groups filed their own amicus brief supporting the property owners because they recognize that these kinds of economic development condemnations disproportionately target the poor and minorities. Uh, and it's also true that other left of center people like Ralph Nader have long opposed these sorts of uh, government actions. Uh, and it has actually generated a big backlash in it over 40 states have passed reform laws more than in response probably to any other Supreme Court decision, perhaps in all of American history. Uh, the problem is that uh, eminent domain law is, is quite complicated. So the ordinary voter has waxed both the expertise and the time and the incentive to pay close attention to what the laws are doing. As a result, many states have passed what look like reform laws, but actually are fairly cosmetic. So what they tend to do is they say, well, you can't condemn people's property for economic development. But you can condemn it, for example, for blight. Uh, if it's blighted. Now, when you and I think of blight, we think, oh, you know, it must be really horrible and dilapidated area. But uh, under the laws of most of these states, pretty much any area can be declared blighted. Uh, one of my favorite examples about five years ago, the Supreme Court of Nevada uh, has said, said that downtown Las Vegas was blighted according to then existing Nevada blight law. And as a result, you can condemn some property in that area in order to transfer it to a group of politically connected casinos who wanted to build a new park parking lot. So obviously, if downtown Las Vegas is blighted, uh, then pretty much any area can be blighted. Uh, now, I should note that Nevada has since changed this blight law, but most states have not. And so as a result, what happened in that case uh, can still happen in the, at least the majority of states. Does any state exemplify a model of post-Kilo reform in terms of 
uh, changing these blight designations? Yes, absolutely. I think there's two ways to go. One is the direction that Florida has gone in, where it simply eliminated condemnations for blight entirely, thereby eliminating the single biggest way in which the poor and the politically weak are victimized by eminent domain. Then you might say, well, what about areas that truly are blighted? Uh, I think they are a real problem, but there's many ways that local and state governments can address those problems without condemning the people who live there and forcing them to leave their homes. Uh, for instance, they can enforce housing codes. If there's a threat to health and safety, they can use uh, nuisance law to address it. Uh, they can also deregulate and uh, do things to promote economic development so that those areas will develop on their own and themselves eliminate blight. Uh, indeed, many scholars, including me, would argue that if you allow lots of condemnation of property, that actually reduces development and makes blight more likely, because obviously people are not going to invest in an area if they think there's a good chance that whatever they invest is going to be condemned by the government and taken away. When people think about blight, they think of a neighborhood being a group of people that are poor that have allowed their properties to, to go down sure. in value. But I think people ignore the extent to which local governments actually can drive areas into what most people would agree is blighted by not taking care of the neighborhood in terms of providing services to it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think more often than not, government is at fault when blight arises. Uh, often it's because they have raised taxes and regulations and other uh, issues to such a level that business flees the area, uh, which has happened in a number of large cities, such as Detroit, I think is the most notorious example. Uh, also, obviously, if the government has poor crime control policies and crime becomes rampant, uh, that will also tend to cause blight. Uh, I think over the last 15 years, cities have been become much better at controlling crime, but there are still some outliers, including, sad to say, Washington, D.C., uh, where we are right now. Uh, and so, as I mentioned before, there are lots of ways that government can act to reduce blight or, better still, to enable the private sector to prevent blight without condemning property and forcing large numbers of people to, uh, you know, to lose their homes. Uh, since World War II, unfortunately, we have actually forced out at least three to four million people uh, from different parts of the United States through so-called blight and urban renewal takings. And in the overwhelming majority of cases, uh, those condemnations did more harm than good, that the harm done to the people expelled was far greater than any benefit that was created for the, uh, for the community. Uh, so in most cases, if not in all, uh, I think we can combat blight without uh, forcing people out of their homes, without uh, taking property away from its owners. Ilya Solman is a law professor at George Mason University and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. You can read more on eminent domain at cato.org.